0: Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, I sat down with jonathan keats uh, who is spelled j-o-n-a-t-h-o-n and the last name is keats k-e-a-t-s and you can find him on twitter at jonathan keats jonathan is an experimental philosopher who works in the space of conceptual art and performance art and I have to say that this is one of the most challenging, and not in a bad way, in a very positive way, one of the most challenging conversations that I've had um, to wrap my head around what is it to do experimental philosophy? And how, uh, what does it mean to move the thought experiment into practice? and challenging the notions that we have around experimentation and what that might mean for uh, lessons to be learned from experiments that are indeed philosophy jonathan was really really interesting and like I said a very challenging uh, conversation um, just because I had so so many questions that I uh, did my best to hold back from but I hope that you find this as interesting as I did Jonathan was here at ASU for the uh, 2017 Emerge Festival You can find more information about that online at emerge.asu.edu. We recently also had a conversation with Dave Gustin around the Frankenstein project, which was also featured at Emerge, the Festival of Futures. So before we get started, as always, Thank you for being here with us on the Future Out Loud podcast. We love to know what you think and appreciate your ideas for future guests, for topics that we might want to explore. You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud. You can also let us know what you think on our Facebook page or like our Facebook page, Future Out Loud. Uh, You can subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you find find fine podcasts and if you like what we're doing please tell your friends so that they also can listen and can like what we're doing as well. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Keats. Hi Jonathan. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, it's great to have you on campus. One of the things we try to do is talk to people who are on campus and off campus, and you uh, fill both of those criteria. So thank you for checking off all of the boxes in one fell swoop.
1: <laughs> I try to do what I can.
0: <laughs> so um, I am so intrigued by uh, your, your background and your present in so much as you are an artist, you're a philosopher working through the modalities of art and engaging with technology. So can you unravel all of that? Or if it's unravelable?
1: I'll try my best. I'm still trying to do so for myself. And having taken on this title of experimental philosopher, I think that I only confuse myself and others more, but. Isn't that what philosophy is about? I was going to say, there
0: are those who would say that that is the essence.
1: (laughs) So I studied philosophy in school and ultimately found it both exhilarating and frustrating. Exhilarating because of the possibility of engaging in big ideas and doing so in a way that was beyond simply the present circumstances looking toward the future. But frustrated because the number of people involved in that conversation were few and the nature of the conversation was often so technical that it was not really possible to ask the big questions that naively, as a child, thinking I don't want to be a philosopher, I thought that I would be able to ask. And as a result of that, I guess you could say that I dropped out and mm-hmm. tried to find a way in which to do it on my own terms. Okay. And I have no background whatsoever in the arts in terms of training, but the art world is an incredibly permissive place, Mm -hmm. and the museums, that is to say, galleries, uh, biennials, events such as Emerge, are really perfect fora for being able to engage in big ideas Mm -hmm. with a much broader audience than is possible within an academic department, Mm -hmm. and specifically a department as self-selecting as philosophy. And so as a result, I've increasingly found myself working within the art world, building large-scale thought experiments, for lack of a better term. Taking a methodology that I learned from philosophy and misapplying it in a way that makes thought experiments genuinely experimental In philosophy, you use a thought experiment, generally speaking, to try to make an argument by setting forth a counterfactual Mm -hmm. and using that to reason backward to the argument that you want to make. Mm -hmm. I suppose that the other reason why I did not stay within philosophy is that I'm much more interested in the questions and don't really think that I have the most interesting answers and often don't have any answers at all, but rather am interested in how we can all engage collectively in asking larger questions in order to be able to think through the world in which we want to live. Okay. So as a result of that, I have taken the thought experiment as a genuine experiment where I set up a counterfactual situation. Mm-hmm. In a sense. It's kind of like the way in which a science fiction writer might do so on the page, or a Mm -hmm. fabulist might Mm -hmm. do so on the page, only I'm doing so in a physical space often, allowing people to interact and allowing that idea to play out through those interactions.
0: Okay. Alright. So, I do have one question about that. You said, when you were thinking that you wanted to become a philosopher as a child, really as a child?
1: I think I also wanted to become a stockbroker, but that was because my father was a stockbroker. Okay. There were no philosophers in the family. I was even as early on as I can remember doing philosophy in the way that I do it right now, but not in the way that any self-respecting philosopher or certainly any academic department would recognize. My One of my early projects was to sell rocks okay, on the street side that were the same as the rocks that were on the ground. I was, I think was in uh, suburbia and mm-hmm. there were plenty of perfectly good rocks all around, but I was selling them for one cent a piece and not doing particularly well, which is probably why spent with them. <laughs> I didn't become a stockbroker. But to me, that really was, even then, doing philosophy in the way that I do it right now, which is to say, attempting to set forth a proposition that is outside of the realm of practicality, Mm -hmm. engaging in processes that we engage in every day. And because I was doing so outside of the realm of anything that ultimately made sense in terms of the commodity, it was a way in which I think I was trying to make sense of what it means to interact in a transaction, what a transaction is, what money is, what commodities are—I don't think I would have used that terminology at the time. Okay. At least I hope not. That's yes. That but, would be
0: well. You have a stockbroker family, <laughs> so that's okay. Yes.
1: But I think that when I say that I always wanted to be a philosopher, again, that it was not that I was citing. Plato as a role model, mm-hmm. or even that I would have said at the time that I wanted to be a philosopher, mm-hmm. but rather that I was always engaging in the processes that then and now I think of as being philosophical. And I believe that all children do this instinctually anyway, and to a large extent, my project ever since has been to preserve that sort of naivete of asking questions pursuing curiosity for the sake of curiosity Mm -hmm. and setting up scenarios, setting up a world in which others can, at least for some short time, exit the necessities of getting by in their grown-up lives Mm -hmm. in order to be able to engage that sort of curiosity. Okay. And Ideally, then, to take it beyond whatever sort of scenario I've set up and to to have that other context beyond any project that I might do that allows for a broader view of the world, a broader engagement with the world that goes beyond the status quo.
0: Okay. So I would imagine that you were probably in maybe high school, college, when you realized that... Oh, this is a thing that has a name like do you remember was that surprising to you that there was a field that was thinking about this way that you like to think
1: I feel like it was much more gradual I would say that for instance I I I'm Jewish Mm -hmm. and very much at the reform end of the spectrum in terms of my family Mm -hmm. and get as a seven or eight-year-old decided that I wanted to be a Talmudic scholar, Um, somehow connected to something that I had probably picked up on the High Holy Days. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I think that I already was entering into this whole idea of a Talmudic process of questioning. Sure. And so I think that I entered into this idea of becoming a philosopher in a way that was much more gradual, and there never really was a single moment that okay. was a moment of surprise that this job existed.
0: Okay, okay. Interesting. Very I also interesting.
1: always wanted to be an inventor and sort of thought of that as kind of a. Nikola Tesla or Thomas Edison type of a role Mm -hmm. and I think just as in the case of philosophy I found that you really don't do philosophy as a professional in the way that a child does it right and therefore I decided I'm going to do it the way that a child does it because that's still the way in which I believe that it can be done if not most productively Certainly, it is as important as anything that has come about in terms of professional philosophy. I think that also I've stubbornly kept with this idea of becoming an inventor in that old-fashioned sense, in a time and in a world where that sort of inventor is no longer a figure, is no longer really possible, because technology has gotten to a level of specialization, science Mm -hmm. has gotten to a level of specialization where you don't have that kind of a universalist, mm-hmm. and I'm less interested in the invention for any sort of use value that it might have in the typical traditional sense, let mm-hmm. alone making any money from it, which once again shows sure, I should not have become a stockbroker I made the right move. Right. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that I continue to try to use that role of the inventor in this uh, anachronistic way in order to collide ideas from different realms that otherwise, because of the necessities of doing good science now Mm -hmm. or or engineering at a level that is basically expected today, Mm -hmm. that no longer is it really possible for a scientist or an engineer to enter into that more universalist mode of thinking that was characteristic of the Enlightenment up through the 19th century and that I believe remains essential in parallel to all the specialization as a way of breaking through that specialization and being able to cross-pollinate, certainly, but also mm-hmm. to be able to to, to get to that meta-level of being able to then look at what it is that we're doing and whether it makes much sense to be doing it in this way and what the implications might be.
0: Okay. All right. So you... Okay. So you... Um formed yourself as an inventor and while leaving sort of the classroom version of philosophy behind. You also left Rashi behind a little bit.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) I am emphatically and uh, persistently agnostic and I think that actually that is Ultimately, one of the most tenable positions in terms of mm-hmm. Judaism, in terms of Talmudic study, mm-hmm. um, but I don't practice Judaism in any way that anyone who is in a going to Jewish would recognize.
0: Right, you are not in it for the brownies after services on Friday nights anymore.
1: Exactly. Yes, uh, that would be a good description. I, I have actually written a book of fables that are based on Talmudic legend Mm -hmm. so in this sort of outsider way that I have of doing everything I guess that I've come back around to that as well.
0: Interesting, very interesting. Um, And so then using your outsider perspective um, you're working on a big project where you are colliding philosophy and art and uh, looking at the future of democracy.
1: Is that fair? Yes, I am trying to figure out what kind of future democracy might have, given that by many accounts, it isn't really working these days, and it's only gone from bad to worse Mm -hmm. in terms of polarization, corruption, and all the various ways in which people are feeling less enfranchised and that there is less possibility of coming to some sort of consensus, let alone having some sort of policy that is going to work for the majority and ideally going to work at some level for everybody. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, I'm thinking about one of the main sources of discontent and potentially one of the main sources of the problem underlying the discontent that many identify the politicians being Mm -hmm. ultimately at fault. And politicians are rather fallible. Mm -hmm. They are potentially corrupt or corruptible. Mm-hmm. They are often unreliable. Mm-hmm. They are, if not corrupt, then in it for reasons that may not be entirely aligned with the public interest. That mm-hmm. is to say, there are many different ways in which self-interest becomes what decides how a politician votes Mm -hmm. on a given issue and so I started to think about whether there might be an alternative means by which to make a politician that would not be problematic for all the reasons that humans are
0: are problematic intrinsically yeah
1: and so thinking about what a politician is and what a politician does in a representative democracy, mm-hmm. I realized that essentially a politician is a black box. Okay, That is to say that when you elect your representative or your president, mm-hmm. you don't know and cannot predict how that person will vote on any given issue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You simply are voting one person in versus another based on what appears to be a greater alignment of your beliefs mm-hmm. with what they espouse Mm -hmm. and so therefore it seems to me that we could have this sort of black box as a machine instead of as a human Mm -hmm. using random number generators okay essentially the way in which a politician votes on any given issue is from the outside of that black box random but not random in the sense of a 50-50 coin toss. Right. Random yet weighted in one way or another.
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: And and to be kind of as, uh, to speak of this in the most broad terms, to be more conservative or liberal, Mm -hmm. to have a greater tendency to enact change Mm -hmm. or stasis. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, it seemed to me that it would be possible to have a random number generator that would have its parameters set by the majority vote of the population, such that it had a, let's say, an 80% chance of giving a yes output for any given piece of legislation, any given bill, Mm -hmm. or an 80% no output, and that you would be voting for greater change or less Mm -hmm. or in other words for change or for stasis Mm -hmm. based on your beliefs about whether the system as it currently operates is optimal or not okay and that could be at the level of a sense of your own life and whether you are getting by or not or Mm -hmm. could be informed by broader set of morals or a combination sure. of those. Sure. And therefore when you go to the polls, you basically are electing for that black box or those black boxes that represent you as your representative, your senator and your president
2: mm-hmm. to
1: vote according to that set of beliefs instantiated in whether you wish for greater change or not or less or, change or less change or whether okay. you, you whether you wish for change or not broadly speaking. And so what I'm doing as an experiment in this proposition, Mm -hmm. and again, I'm working as a philosopher on the outside trying to explore what democracy is, why it works, and why it doesn't, and how it might. I am not advocating this as an alternative, but rather using it as a thought experiment so that we start to have a broader conversation about what works and what doesn't and why i am however from within the project doing my best to instantiate it as a working system which will be installed at the asu art museum in the fall okay where we are going to build the entire u.s government Mm -hmm. in the form of all of the representatives in congress Mm -hmm. senate president and a supreme court that will be appointed Mm -hmm. by those using a formalized version of the way in which constitutionally a Supreme Court is selected. Okay. And the entire system will be electromechanical. Okay. And will be able then to take in as input legislation in the form of the current code, mm-hmm. current laws mutated. Okay. And that might be by mechanical Turkers or mm-hmm. we might do it through Algorithmic approach that still is to be determined, or it may be a combination of the two. But the new or alternative version of the US government will be operational from approximately October through the end of the year. Okay. And will be operational both to see and show and explore how it works, but also with the idea that we might be able to license this as a technology for the U.S. government or for local governments that, first of all, save a lot of money on all those politicians and their pay because Mm -hmm. random number generators come cheap, and also potentially for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier, it might be a better system, maybe a far worse system. Okay. And, of course, by building it and seeing what happens, people will be in a position to judge and be able then to get in touch with, well, with their politicians, I guess, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, advocate for whether the U.S. government might want to license this technology.
0: Okay. So, and you are from San Francisco. So, just to be clear, Nancy Pelosi, Jonathan, is not intending to immediately replace you with a random number generator. Immediately. Well, not at (laughs) all.
1: Not immediately, no. And I certainly would not be the one to make that decision anyway. Meaning, I am trying in the tradition of democracy to democratically go about the process of evaluating how democracy works Mm -hmm. and having that broader conversation about why it is breaking down right now. And I think that in order for us to... Operate as a democracy. I mean, speaking mm-hmm. from outside my role within this project of trying to build this thing. Mm-hmm. I believe that one of the reasons for the breakdown in democratic processes, as a matter of my own opinion, mm-hmm. has to do with the fact that we have lost to some extent the capacity for these broader conversations, mm-hmm. and we only within the realm of politics are pre-polarized in a way that we represent one viewpoint or another defaulting to Mm -hmm. one viewpoint or another Mm -hmm. and this is a result of the speed at which change takes place, Mm -hmm. this is a result of social media and the filter bubble Mm -hmm. that is uh, part of it this is a result of the technological state of life in general and the fact that we have less and less time seemingly to be able to reflect I think that reflection is what is one of the qualities that is really lacking in our society and is perhaps responsible for the breakdown in communication and breakdown in the ability to think beyond the immediate present and think beyond a certain ideology in order to be able to reach compromises that are viable.
0: Okay. Well, I think that one of the things you said about the speed right at which we Mm. have these conversations and i mean the speed of the news cycle i mean i remember when i'm old enough to remember when we made the shift to like oh my gosh this 24-hour news cycle like this is crazy who can keep up with this and now we're on a 140 character news cycle that you know is on the matter of minutes right if if even it lasts minutes Mm -hmm. there's just no way to process that. And I think on the sort of technology innovation side, we see not to that extent quite as much, but we see this push, this pressure to, you know, innovate and get your new products out and you know, get this patented like yesterday. And there's just not a lot of time. We don't allow ourselves time to reflect. You know, we no longer have transatlantic crossings to make by ship that gives us some time to think
1: and even if we have a commute on the bus mm-hmm. by and large that is taken up by business because mm-hmm. everyone is connected all the time right so the number of people who are reading war and peace mm-hmm. on the bus every morning
0: was there ever cute. yeah was there ever a large number of people reading war and peace on the bus every morning there
1: were people reading the the penny dreadfuls oh sure and, like books and i'm not actual book, yeah and i'm not convinced that there's a great deal of difference between the two i think that the ability to get outside of your immediate circumstances
2: mm-hmm.
1: to activate the imagination in a process that is purposefully purposeless Mm-hmm. Is really essential in terms of having that capacity to engage in the democratic process of being able to mm-hmm. decide at some broader level
2: mm-hmm.
1: what is best or at least what is viable for society.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's fair. So
1: and War and Peace was very popular, let's not forget.
0: There was a day. There was a day. Yes, yes. So I mean, you clearly are operating in a successful way and in, in a, a futuring way in this space of, you know, insisting on making space for a reflection. How do you get to that space? I mean, do you read books? Do you... Unplugged. I mean, how how do you how do you operationalize that for yourself?
1: Well, to some extent, I don't plug in the first place. Okay. I still don't have a cell phone. Wow. And so I have that time walking down the street. I also don't have a car. Okay. Never have. So by opting out of certain technologies, not as a luddite, not out of the belief that we shouldn't have them, but mm-hmm. simply because I don't want them for okay. myself, mm-hmm. I effectively create this space around myself where I'm able to engage in this process of reflection. And Mm -hmm. also, quite frankly, I have the enormous and unusual luxury of being able to do so as my profession. Mm -hmm. Most people are trying to make rent, are trying to put food That's on the right. table and are trying to do so through jobs that they would not have chosen for themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I had the benefit of a great education mm-hmm. and an enormous amount of luck
2: mm-hmm. that
1: had put me into a circumstance where I can set aside hours in the day to engage in purposeful purposelessness mm-hmm. which is in fact my job description. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to imply that others are not doing their duty by not doing as I do, because Mm -hmm. that would be grossly unfair to them. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, to first of all say that there is time in anyone's day, Mm -hmm. even if it's a matter of a few minutes Mm -hmm. here or there, for that to take place, and that we can all find those few minutes. if curiosity is something that is reactivated and remains as an urge in the same way that checking email or texting is an urge. And secondly, that our society as a whole, I believe, can move in a direction that allows for that sort of time. Mm-hmm. We we invented the weekend. If we invented the weekend and we invented the idea of time off of mm-hmm. luxury, all of these various ideas,
2: mm-hmm.
1: certainly we can find ways in which to make curiosity something that is not mandated, but is allowed for in terms of how we structure our lives. Mm-hmm. And the economics and politics that surround that, that would facilitate that, are economics and politics I think we need to think about. Sure.
0: sure. Well, it, you know, um, invites really the questioning of what is the most strategic way to engage or to view, to engage in politics and to engage in policymaking. And I'm thinking about a conversation that I had with a, member of congress in the last year about you know the cbo scoring of a piece of legislation and i said listen he he, he said you know i need to know what the cbo how the cbo scored and i said well you know the cbo scored at 300 million but let me explain that and he said you don't need to explain i know mm-hmm. that the cbo doesn't discount for um you know for long-term savings i said if they did it would be you know a million gain, right? Right. And he said, yeah, but my constituents won't, like, if I vote for somebody that has a CBO score like that, that's a loss for me. Mm -hmm. And I understand what you're saying. And it's so maddening to me that our horizon for doing democracy is, like, so tiny, Mm -hmm. right? We are, if we're even focused on a whole tree, Like, the Mm -hmm. forest is completely out of sight. You know, we may be focused on a leaf of a tree, and that is all we can do. And I think
1: that by formalizing democracy and instantiating it in a machine, it becomes possible to start experimenting Mm -hmm. and see what would happen if we were to set the parameters such that terms were different than they are, such that you stagger versus have everyone changing on a regular basis, Um, periodicities, interactions between branches of government. You basically have a circuit board where Mm -hmm. you can start to try out whatever you'd like and get results that you can look at. Mm -hmm. And first of all there's the real possibility of going and playing with the machine and Mm -hmm. secondly there's a way in which you can do so in your mind once you recognize that there is this machine mm-hmm. and therefore, in this formalized version, a lot of the assumptions, a lot of the traditions, a lot of the ways in which we don't feel like we can imagine something else because that's how it's always been. Mm-hmm. It's never been this way. So once we enter into that, then we can start to change anything and change everything.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that notion of it's always been this way is problematic. I assume you had, you know, growing up in in religious services, the similar experience that I had that when they said, well, you know, we do the service in this order because that's the way it mm. is. And I thought, no, some, you know, some dead white guy said mm. that that's the way that it is. Like, that doesn't mean that that's how it must be, Right. Um, and I think mm. that getting to the idea of being able to tangibly experiment with democracy um, maybe helps to break through that barrier. And there's this
1: very old tradition of philosophical toy, mm-hmm. of something that you can tangibly use as a way in which to engage in ideas. And I think there's real value to that still. So. Going to the museum and engaging in this is important, but I think that also it just becomes something out in the world that people know about, Mm -hmm. they hear about by way of this podcast, for instance. Mm -hmm. And even that awareness allows you to imagine in your head something that's probably very different, probably a lot better than whatever I'll come up with that would be in the museum. But nevertheless, it, it potentially gives more flexibility in terms of the questions that you're asking yourself and asking of your society.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So how? So you're you're creating an installation for the museum, and that I presume is going to be asking people to interact with it and provide some feedback in terms of wanting more change, less change, and then running with that. Is that how you have it?
1: So there are two different aspects to the project, one of which is going to be stable over the full run of the exhibition. Okay. Where we will take the 2016 election results mm-hmm. and hardwire them into a system that will be running for the months that the system is installed. Oh, okay. So that is a relatively conservative or relatively traditional way in which to go about something that is perhaps not so traditional. Okay already making a lot of assumptions and Mm -hmm. kind of breaking a few rules by saying that we should replace politicians by random number generators in the form Mm -hmm. of spinning wheels. Mm -hmm. Um, It will be electromechanical in a way that you'll be able to see government at work because I think that it's important that you be able to see how the system is working and you be able to press a button to activate a new legislative cycle. So there will be interaction at that level. Okay. There will also be another machine which is going to debut at Emerge Mm -hmm. that is for a more futuristic way of thinking about this. So in other words, what I was speaking about earlier, where once we've done away with politicians and therefore with a lot of the assumptions that go into how democracy works, Mm -hmm. then we can start to play with all sorts of ideas. So if it's random number generators, then you no longer have the problem of moving people to Washington, D.C. and uh, all the logistics Mm -hmm. of a government. You Mm -hmm. could have government operating in real time, so to speak. So in other words, rather than having somebody go to the polls on, A basis of every two years voting for one politician or another Mm -hmm. or voting for stasis versus change as I'm proposing here Mm -hmm. you could in fact have it happen at any periodicity that you like Mm -hmm. and you could have it happen through other stimuli other than going and pulling a lever or pressing Mm -hmm. a button so one realm that I've been exploring is biometrics Mm -hmm. is the idea that stress level as measured Mm -hmm. through heart rate or heart rate variability potentially Mm -hmm. or even by hormone levels such as cortisol level, Mm -hmm. that it might be possible to use that as a proxy or perhaps as a more immediate way of gauging where people are relative to the system in which they live Mm -hmm. and therefore how the system needs to be adjusted or re-optimized. So imagine that instead of going every two years to the polls and saying, I want that person or this person to be my representative, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or I want change or stasis for Mm -hmm. the random number generator, that instead I have a wearable Mm -hmm. that is constantly measuring my stress level. Right. And if my stress level is increasing, Mm -hmm. that suggests that the fitness of the system to my needs is decreasing, mm-hmm. and therefore, that there is a need for a higher mutation rate for greater change. For change. Mm-hmm. As a result, the parameters of my politician can be changed from an 80 20 to a 20 80 mm-hmm. percent split, or even more nuanced than that through the entire spectrum of what those percentages are. Mm -hmm. There also is a possibility of the mutation rate for the legislation itself or the periodicity by which laws pass through the system. All of these parameters can be changed potentially at any frequency that you want. And you can therefore, first of all, have everyone engaged in this system. You no longer have the need for someone to be or the presumptive need for someone to be 18 years old Mm -hmm. or any given age because stress level is something that could be measured in absolutely everybody and arguably is appropriate to measure in children as well in order that you have a system that better represents Mm -hmm. the future, better Mm -hmm. represents society as a whole. You could even think about whether animals ought to have their stress level measured. Mm -hmm. But I think this also leads to a recognition of democracy as an evolutionary process. Not intentionally so given that the history of democracy predates the mm-hmm. Darwinian worldview in terms of how natural selection works. Right. But that in fact what is happening is that you have a a species that is operating within an ecosystem mm-hmm. and is through mutation adapting to that system, to that ecosystem, even as that ecosystem changes. And that already is the case in terms of the way in which we operate within a within our current system. Mm-hmm. But you, in fact, get closer to that when you start thinking about it in terms of this randomization process sure. of mutation in terms of possible scenarios and which scenarios get selected. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And also where you think about what is triggering that in terms of some sort of a biophysical signal on the part of the populace. And I have no idea how this is going to work out. In the first place, we need to figure out how do we have a reliable signal to begin with. And Mm -hmm. at Emerge, we built an apparatus for three people at a time that will have heart rate sensors that will then run through a system that has been developed by Jeff Labelle here at ASU Mm -hmm. and will then run through a random number generator that has been developed by T.C. Lee, who is an undergraduate in electrical engineering here at ASU, who has built this machine to my specifications Mm -hmm. that effectively is doing what I was describing earlier for three voters. Okay. So the way in which we will do this initial calibration study to be able to figure out what sort of parameters make sense. And also, can we use stress in this very sort of blunt way Mm -hmm. as a way in which to measure satisfaction with the status quo? We can't quite run that experiment, because that experiment would be a matter of putting people in wearables over a long period of time. Right, right. We're trying something that is a little bit more to do with getting people to vote on specific issues, Mm -hmm. both consciously by pressing a button and also by measuring their stress level. So we'll be reading propositions from Donald Trump's contract with the American voter, Mm -hmm. and having people vote whether they are in favor or opposed to a given proposition, Mm -hmm. and also measuring stress level when that is being read and using that as a basis for the random number generator okay. to operate and to vote them based on their heart rate and or their heart rate variability and then we can start to look at the degree to which these coincide as we start to change various parameters operating under the hypothesis that there is loss aversion that potentially this is my hypothesis mm-hmm. be in play in the case of a policy that would adversely affect you as opposed to a policy that would simply affect you or that would affect you positively okay. and therefore that we can detect a signal that can be used as a basis for this voting mechanism okay. so loss aversion is something that we find in economics often where mm-hmm. people losing five dollars will react more strongly than gaining five dollars and this is something that has been shown in terms of stress level Mm -hmm. measuring heart rate to be something that is a measurable difference so does that work in the political spectrum as well Mm -hmm. and can that be an initial basis for this much larger idea that I'm exploring and I have the benefit here at ASU of working with Professor Leah In the psychology department, who has been consulting, providing me with a lot of context that has helped to configure a viable experiment. I don't know whether she will ultimately consider it to be so, but nevertheless, (laughs) uh, consulting with her and also with Jeff Labelle, the resources here have been amazing, as well as working with Center for Science and Imagination and with the ASU Art Museum to be able to come up with something that has gone through approval from the Institutional Review Board here at ASU, for Mm -hmm. instance, and that is as rigorous as possible. And in general, my methodology is always that I'm doing something that is perhaps absurd, Mm -hmm. but doing it absolutely rigorously because it's a way in which we can enter into that counterfactual, into that potential scenario in totality and with a... Suspension of disbelief sufficient mm-hmm. to be able then to use it as a space from which to look back on our own world and to assess our own world uh, from a perspective that we otherwise wouldn't have.
0: It strikes me that, in the most transdisciplinary way possible, you are taking the, you are taking philosophy, which has traditionally been the purview of an exercise in virtual reality, and you are making it into reality. Or maybe bringing it
1: back to what it was when philosophers were uh, allied by name in the first place with natural philosophers, what Mm -hmm. we now refer to as scientists, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. there was this much broader sense in which you are exploring the world in which you live in order to understand it better. So I think it's always been there. I think that through specialization, the scientist and the philosopher have become very different people with very different professional obligations. And I guess that in my own contrary way, I'm saying that while that has been incredibly productive and is really valuable in its own right, mm-hmm. that there's something that we left behind sure. that can be put in the present in a way that it can be productive and potentially valuable as well.
0: This is so interesting. And I... I'm excited to see it at Emerge, the Festival of Futures that podcast listeners have heard about before, um, which will have already happened by the time this goes Mm -hmm. up, but at the ASU Art Museum, and you, so it'll be throughout the fall
1: of 2017. And there will be the opportunity to interact with the apparatus that we are initially using for experimental purposes at Emerge. Okay as well as to be able to view and to interact with the formalized, uh, mechanized version of the U.S. government.
0: Okay. And maybe that's a version of the U.S. government that people like better than the version that we happen to have today. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jonathan, so much. And, and I would love for you to come back after this experiment is done, if it is something that could ever be done in the way that we understand done to mean. But uh, learn what you learned.
1: Thank you. And I would love to talk more. So Terrific. let's plan on it.
0: All right. Let's do that. Thanks. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Mark Van Hare created our music. Anna Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook
2: and Twitter at